electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Stocks are higher right now, but where they end up for the week is still a bit uncertain. Where Fed policy is headed following Jay Powell's hawkish comments yesterday, that's also a little uncertain. So let's kick things off this hour with someone who can directly shed light on what to expect from the Fed from here. And that's San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, who is here now along with CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. All right, Steve, kick things off for us. You just did. You kicked it off. Uh, Mary Daly, thank you for joining us this afternoon or this morning by your count. Glad to do it. Okay, so what what Kelly just read is sort of the question I have. Um, Where are we right now on Fed policy? I think there might be a little bit of confusion in the sense that Are we one bad inflation report away from hiking rates or does the you and the do you and the committee need to be convinced uh, uh, with a series of bad reports to hike rates or are you on hold? Okay, let me first say that I'm going to speak for myself and here's how I see it. How I see it is that policy is in a very good place. We have it positioned so that, in my judgment, the risks are uh, over-tightening and under-tightening are roughly balanced. And we see policy working. That's the second point. Policy is working. The economy is slowing. You see some of the real-side variables, employment, et cetera, easing. Those are good things in terms of the forecast for inflation. And the news on inflation has been fairly good. And we shouldn't dismiss that. It's been good. All of that said, it is far too early to declare victory. And I think that's why, you know, there's a lot of demand for certainty that we would say we're done or we're definitely hiking. But the truth is we don't know. And we shouldn't really declare one side or the other because prudent policy, optimal policy, means we stand in the ready position, ready to stop if the inflation data continue to perform well and ready to raise again to get to sufficiently restrictive if we need to pull the reins back on the economy even more. And I I think that ready position is something everyone understands in sports. You stay in center court. But when we do it in policy, people find it confusing. But I think it is optimal policy positioning right now. Mary, I I was listening to uh, Fed Chair Powell yesterday, who now twice, once at the press conference and once in a speech yesterday, said the Fed is not confident we have reached the rate where we uh, will bring down inflation. And I know this is not sort of a, a, a wonky monetary policy question, but Shouldn't the Fed chair be confident that he's in a place where inflation will come down? Are you confident we're in a place where inflation will come down at this level? So if I may, I'm going to use an analogy because I think of it this way, right? You can be significantly restrictive, which I think we are, and you can still not be sure if you're sufficiently restrictive, which is, again, where we are. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you've ever ridden a horse, it looks like this. You're pulling back the reins, and the horse notices you're pulling back the reins, and that's significantly restrictive. But you don't know if the horse is feeling that bridle enough to be sufficiently restrictive to stop. And so, much like the horse, we're in a position now where we know we're significantly restrictive. But to really be truly confident that we have a sufficient level of restriction in the economy to bring inflation 
inflation down. Right. We're going to have to watch the data and see if the economy is slowing and inflation is consistently coming down. So you mentioned at the top of the question, are we looking at one report, three reports? I'd really like to get out of the idea that data dependence is a single report or even two reports. It's really about how you put all of that together, including all of the outreach we do when we talk to businesses and communities right. and unions and workers and ask, how do you think the economy is going? Are you still hiring? Are you cutting back? Are we getting, seeing inflation come down, input prices, et cetera? So it's going to be the constellation of data, data plural, that we're going to have to look at. We're going to have to be very forward-looking here. And so that's why too early to declare victory, but I don't want to discount the fact that we're in a good place because we can be able to move easily and agilely, depending okay. on what the data bring. I want to come back to that, but I want to just make sure, because when Rafael Bostic sat across from me and said we're sufficiently restrictive, it was a big deal, because that's a metric that Chair Powell has put out there for once we get there, we can stop. Is Mary Daly saying now we're sufficiently restrictive or not? I'm saying I don't know yet, okay. and I think that's okay. okay. I feel confident in saying that it's not clear yet. And re reasonable people can disagree here on, on whether we're sufficiently restrictive, but I just would remind all the listeners that everybody's views depend on their outlook for the economy. And what I'm saying is that our outlook for the economy, while quite positive, still has open questions. Will inflation really continue to come down as we need it to? Americans have been waiting too long for inflation to come back down to 2%, and it is our job and our commitment to remain vigilant on that, on that battle until we can really deliver on that promise over a reasonable time frame. Although I wonder if getting back down to 2%, I mean, I think in the 90s it took till like 1995 or something. So, you know, obviously if the economy starts to worsen considerably, maybe, maybe we have our answer, even if it, we're not all the way down there. But uh, President Daly, I wanted to actually ask you about something a little different, which is, are you unnerved at all by how the bond auctions are going? Not because, you know, fiscal policy is the Fed's man, uh, mandate, but actually your third mandate is moderate long-term <laughs> interest rates. You know, people always say the Fed has a dual mandate. They actually have a triple one. Um, so as you watch, and it, if, if, can you hear me okay? As you watch the auctions go off, are you satisfied with the level of demand for treasuries? And would there be any mandate for the Fed to step in if they felt that long-term interest rates were becoming unanchored? I don't know that she's hearing us now. Steve, maybe you can paraphrase. Mary, do you hear us now? I guess we're having a technical issue here with Mary Daly. Um, so um, just to recap what we've been hearing, because we're, we're, I guess we'll get Mary Daly right back on right away. Um, my, she's again in this, in this limbo is where, is where we are right yes. now. That's really yes. the, the essence of it. We, we are almost done, but maybe not quite, depending upon where the, the data come out. But I liked your first question, which was, are we just one, you know, quote unquote, bad inflation report away from us? I think again? we might be closer, closer than perhaps is being, is being acknowledged perhaps by the market, because we, we have had a bunch of Fed speakers come forward and tell us that they think that the, the market is, uh, or the, the data has been sideways when it comes to inflation. I think Mary Daly is back now. Are you back now, President Daly? I am back. Thank you. Thanks. Well I'll, done. I'll ask my question well much more quickly this time, which was basically <laughs> just, are you concerned at all by the way that uh, bond auctions have been going or that, you know, the long end of, of the yield curve is becoming untethered? 
So, you know, really bond yields move around for a variety of reasons, and there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So I don't think we should be surprised at that volatility. I would like to make a very big distinction between volatility that causes financial dislocation or something worrisome about market functioning. We're not there. And volatility that's a natural outcome of tremendous uncertainty out there in the in the world, geopolitical tensions, where the economies are going, what central banks are doing, and the normal market participant behavior of trying to figure it out. And right now, what I see is that financial conditions from the Fed's perspective, this is what we need to see. Financial conditions are tighter than they were, and they're remaining tight. We're seeing this in bank lending, et cetera. And that is going to be a helping part of bringing the economy back into balance and bringing inflation down. You were one of the first uh, presidents, I think, uh, President Daly, to point out that the bond market was doing some of the work for the Fed. Uh, And you had said last month that you thought it was doing about a quarter point extra for the Fed in terms of raising rates. How do you feel now that they were up near 5%, they're back down near 4.5%? Give us your characterization of how long-end bond yields are impacting and influencing Fed policy. You know, they're still up from the prior to the September meeting, and I think that you should we should think about that. But I would like to broaden the conversation because I don't want to get overly fixated on uh, a 10 year uh-huh. yield that moves around for a variety of factors. Let's look at financial conditions more broadly. Mortgage rates are up. Credit card rates are up. Car borrowing, you know, car loan rates are up. The economy banks lending, they're charging higher rates and the standards have risen. So we are seeing tighter financial conditions. It is working through the economy in the way we would expect. And the big question is, is it enough? And so if financial conditions should loosen more, well, that would be something we would have to pay attention to. But it's also, what's the behavior of inflation? And if it moves sideways, I came in right at the point you're saying it's moving sideways. If it continues to move sideways and the labor market and GDP growth remain Mm -hmm. solid or strong, well, then we probably have to raise again. If those things don't happen, they come down and inflation comes continues to come down to 2%, well, then that's a different decision. So I think that's why, if I can, I would just like to emphasize optionality has to be the metric of the day and, and mm-hmm. not the certainty that I think everybody would love us to say, but that wouldn't be optimal policy. Can you tell us what sufficiently restrictive looks and feels like? Sure. For me, I'm going to speak for myself. I'm sure. going to say sufficiently restrictive means that I'm seeing some movement in the inflation data that's not simply on the what I would characterize as the easy wins. Right now, goods price inflation is doing exactly what you would want. Supply chains are easing, but the Fed doesn't have a lot to do with supply chains sure. easing or not easing. So those were easy wins. It's a huge relief to the American people who don't have to pay high and rising prices, but it's not exactly the, the way that inflation is going to come all the way back down to 2%. So I'm looking at shelter price inflation. That is coming down. And I'm looking at that elusive so far category of core services, X housing. And if that gets stuck at sideways, well, that's yeah. going to be an indication we're not sufficiently restrictive. But we don't know yet. So that's why I continue to be data dependent. I want to go exactly where you, I know you don't want to go, which is to talk about deficits. And I get that. I, you know, sometimes I'm glad the Fed doesn't talk about that. But I do want to Uh, talk about this issue, which, as Chair Powell said, I'm sure you've said in the past, too, you take what's given to you. In a world like we have right now, which is high and rising, or at least permanently high deficits, what does that do to the neutral rate in your mind? 
So the way the neutral rate works is is very simple. It's the demand of fun, for funds and the supply of funds. Right. So savings and investment. And if the governments of, across the globe are using some of that investment along with the private sector, well, then the supply of funds is the same. The neutral rate's going to rise. It is something that I think it should be on all of our minds. But again, I think, you know, there's a sense, and I've lived through this now several times through several cycles, that people always want to declare that the structure of the economy has completely changed while we're still sorting out the cyclical pressure. Right. So I think we should keep an open mind about what's happened to the neutral rate of interest and whether it has risen, but not be declarative yet because we right. still don't know. I, I want to translate this into English for, for people <laughs> to use at cocktail parties at the danger of, of not being 100% accurate. So please correct me. Is it right to say that if we were in a world of permanently higher government deficits and borrowing, that is a world of higher interest rates and higher, a higher neutral rate? Is that fair to say? If the government borrowing is in addition Additional, to the private right, sector's demand. Prim- okay, great. Yep. Kelly, I got that walkie part. Thank you for no, letting me do I, that. I, I feel like our viewers aren't going to be satisfied unless I just push it one step further, okay, President Daly, to, to then ask, you know, is it because of the deficit <clears throat> that we are seeing higher long-term interest rates right now? No. And, not, well, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I say no, but it's really hard to know. I guess what I say no to is that it's a single factor. So let me be very clear. It is tempting to say, oh, it must be this, it must be that. But really, it's a it's a group of things. And I think the, the temptation that we need to really resist is thinking one thing is driving the, the economic dynamics we're witnessing. Because if we do that, that's the real head fake that you can get, is if you over focus on one thing and then you, you're living in a complex world, you'll miss the real pieces of the transition that are so important to making good policy decisions. Right. Mary, I'm, I'm interested in this idea that you talked about earlier, which is that your contacts. And I, I don't remember a time when I've had an opportunity to talk to Federal Reserve officials who are relying more upon what they're hearing on the ground than what the data is saying. And is, is that because there's such a contrast right now that the Third quarter came in so strong. The job market, I guess that weakened a bit, but still remains strong. Is there a big difference right now between what the data are saying and what you're hearing? Well, I, I think of it a little differently, Steve, if I may. I think of it as the data are that we collect, the headline data, the, the all that information is often backward looking. So it tells you where you've been. But right now, what's so critical as we decide if we're significantly or sufficiently restrictive is really what's happening going forward. So the contact information, which we always collect, it's not new, but the emphasis on really asking people not what they're doing last week, but what are they doing over the next six months? And really understanding that is going to be critical to us doing a good projection of how the economy is evolving so that if we get a GDP report that says, oh, my gosh, it's robust, well, then we have to go back and say, but right. will it continue to be robust? That's why we're focusing on this. It's really additive to the to the published data collection, something we always do. But in every transition I've ever been through, you, you rely a lot on these uh, contact sure. information bits. Mary, last question, and you've been very uh, um, generous with your time here. Um, Do you still hold out hope? Is it your base case that we have this sort of soft landing that we move to a place? And is that soft landing a period of below potential growth, at potential growth, or above potential growth? 
So absolutely. My aspiration since we started this journey of trying to bring inflation down is that we do it as gently as we can and that we we end up doing the thing that, that most people want, which is have a healthy and strong, vibrant economy that's sustainable and 2% inflation. So that's every bit of the work I'm doing in my right. committee members, this is where I can speak for us, is about that thing. For me, that probably does look like, Steve, a little bit of period, we low potential growth and the labor market slowing down to at least a sustainable pace, which is around 100,000 jobs per month, not something larger than that. And so that is more transition to come. But it is not an economy that falls into a, a deep downturn. And I think now the probabilities that everyone's calculating seems to agree with that. So we still have work to do. We're still working hard on that. But that is, of course, the goal. 2% inflation in a good economy. Mary, thank you for joining us and, and for thank your you. debut on the exchange. And my guess is they'll have you back, right, Kelly? Anytime. Yeah. Open invitation. Thanks so much for well, joining thank us. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you both. San Francisco Fed President mm -hmm. Mary Daly. Steve, stay with us. Uh, let's dive a little deeper now into her comments and where we are in this business cycle. My next guest is well known for the SOM rule that we seem to be close to triggering after the October jobs report. It tells us that when the unemployment rate rises half a point from the cycle, lows, a recession is coming. Or, or is it? Joining us now, Claudia Sam is founder of Sam Consulting, a former Fed economist and developer of the Sam rule. You are everywhere these days. So we, you're like a rock star. We appreciate you joining us here today. Welcome. Thank you. So Good to be here. There's, uh, there's so much I want to get out and I'll, I'll let you do the talking first. Um, have we triggered the Sam rule? No, we have not. So we're, we've moved a lot closer since the middle of the year. We are not in a recession. It's an indicator, not a forecast. We're not in a recession. And yet we've been getting a lot closer to the flashing red on, on the indicator. And, and it's no promise that we stay out of a recession going forward. What I think is so fascinating about your research is you developed it with an automatic stabilizer in mind. And I want everyone to hang on to their seats when I tell them what, what this could be, that when we rise half a point, and you use the three-month moving average, so we're not quite there yet, when we rise half a point in the cycle, that could be a policy moment to release stimulus checks to households. Now, you developed this well before COVID, well before you know, this became um, you know, the subject of much scrutiny and debate. Would that still be a policy that you think would be applicable today if we do hit that trigger point? Automatic stabilizers in general are a good idea. And we have some in the United States already for fighting recessions. One place where the SOM rule, I did see it uh, come into at least draft legislation that Senator Bennett and some of his colleagues led was in turning on the enhanced jobless benefits. And that's another program that we often do with extra money in the checks, longer durations. Now, obviously, that's not we don't have that right now, but I think it brings that principle. And if nothing else, it can help Congress have a guide of okay, it's time, even if they do it on a discretionary basis. And we can think a lot harder about how to structure, say, the stimulus check. We've le learned a lot on how we could do that better in terms of timing and size. So I, I think it's a very promising area. And I'd like to get back to it and stop being a arbiter of recessions. That's a lot <laughs> less fun. Claudia, I, I have to watch out for the people on the exchange because what they do is they take stories that are on my list of things to do. <laughs> And then I turn around and they're doing it already because they're doing the, a piece on the summer was on my on my list of things. And, and what I want to ask you is this is is the sum rule a causative relationship or is it simply an indicative relationship in the sense that when this happens, this other thing tends to happen? Or does the idea of this rising create the reality of the recession? 
So to be clear, the SOM rule is an empirical regularity. It's a pattern. It's right. highly accurate. Going back to the 70s, every single recession, it hits it and doesn't hit outside of it. Now, that's and that's true of any, you know, macroeconomist comes in and tells you what's going to happen. Same thing. Empirical data in the past. Now, there is a logic to it that is very important and not novel to the SOM rule, is that once the unemployment rate starts rising, it often keeps going and it picks up steam. And it's a feedback loop that... You know, workers get laid off, then they go out and spend less, then the other workers get laid off because there aren't the customers, and so on and so forth. And so that's why a small increase in the unemployment rate can be really bad news because it keeps sure. going. But see, where I was going with this is, I get that, but it seems like everything has been different this time. We're still waiting for the inversion of the yield curve to give us the uh, 100% automatic recession that hasn't come around yet. And I'm just wondering if you could think about your own rule and what your, your work shows. Is there a reason why we should be, this is gonna be just like it always was, or could it be different this time? So my base case right now, as with President Daley, is that we avoid a recession. My huh. base case is also that the SOM rule breaks, that we do trigger at a half a percentage point, because that would mean just getting up around 4% and hanging there for three months. Right. I think given where we're at right now, that is entirely well, possible. Wait a second. Are we hearing a Sam rule corollary here that that it's it's not the change, but also the level has an impact? No, 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 no. It's in the unemployment um, rate. That is. No, it's not. The the trigger has nothing to do with the level because it's triggered at all kinds of different levels in the past. It's more that I mean, honestly, we're at three point nine percent. Right. It wouldn't take much to drift up around four and stay there for a little bit. Exactly. The reason I think the logic behind this time is different, is that right now we're seeing increases in the unemployment rate that both have to do with demand, that was that feedback cycle I was talking about, and they have to do with supply. We have had a burst of workers come back this year, and they've just come back faster than the jobs are adding, because things have moderated. So this is, we're in a period of the catch-up. It was exactly the opposite under the labor shortage, when we had really low unemployment rates, because there were jobs, 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 and not enough workers. So that's going to take a little bit of time to work out. So that's why I think we could keep moving up in the unemployment rate. And yet, as those rebalancings happen, we can, you know, level out, maybe mm -hmm. even come back down before. Below Everything four. about this encapsulates so well. We have the founder of the SOM rule saying maybe this time is going to be different. from our and, and also, we just heard from the San Francisco Fed president about, you know, the soft landing. But let me just end, uh, Claudia, with this. As you've said, the, the first half point rise in the unemployment rate, don't you think almost every cycle people dismiss it and they say, no, but the economy, it's not that bad. It's still strong. Look around. You know, I, I feel like the reason I like your rule is that it tells us before we want to admit it to ourselves that something's happening. And I look at the consumer sentiment data this morning. It was terrible. Right. And you just think like maybe these things are telling us something that we can't quite see point blank yet. But I admit the markets are singing a different tune today. And yeah. uh, as you said, maybe it will be different. Right. And the Fed watches this, right? The rule when it triggered in the Great Recession, that was about the time the Fed staff put the recession call in. Wow. Right. So that was pretty early That's in the spring. So this is this is not like something I just dreamed up. Right. And there are people that watch this. There are market participants that have uh, followed these kind of, you know, increases in the, in, in the unemployment rate. And yet you are absolutely correct that often we start explaining it away. Yeah. Like, oh, GDP is so strong. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. We hope you're wrong. <laughs>
<laughs> and she says, I hope so, too. We hope you're wrong. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. <laughs> Claudia, Sam, seriously, I know uh, you've had a lot of demands on your time this week. We appreciate you making the time and joining us here. Uh, by the way, read more on her excellent Substack, stack, uh, Claudia Sam. Coming up, are retailers ready for a potentially ho-hum holiday season? We'll get Bank of America's take on the all-important quarter for retail next, plus another view on spending from the CEO of TripAdvisor. That stock tracking for its second straight weekly gain of 10% and best month since January after a big earnings beat. We'll get his outlook on the holiday travel season and beyond. I mentioned markets and take a look at the positive tone this afternoon, shaking off what we heard from Chair Powell yesterday. Session high is pretty much here with the Dow up 272 or nearly a percent. The S&P up to 4397, 1.1%. The NASDAQ up 1.6% and the 10-year note climbing to 4.63. Steve, thank you again as well today. Thank for you. all your time. Steve Leesman. we're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, a volatile couple of days for shares of a firm. It was higher 14% yesterday after Q1 results topped expectations. It's now down 8% today, even as data from Morning Consult reveals 39% of high-end consumers are considering using buy-now-pay-later loans for holiday expenses. So what does that tell us about the kind of season we might be in for, especially after that weak consumer sentiment report this morning? Let's talk some retail winners and losers now with Lorraine Hutchinson, retail analyst at B of A Securities. Lorraine, it's great to see you. It's, it's that time of year. How is it looking so far? Uh, you know, we are expecting a pretty muted holiday this year. Our retail team in total expects retail sales up about 0.6%. Um, this is a big deceleration from last year's 3.3 and really continues the relatively weak performance we've seen in categories like apparel and accessories all year long. Yeah, so that I think is what people are concerned about. And we'll talk later on with TripAdvisor and how much of this is just spending shift to services. But is it a consumer problem broadly or just a buying stuff problem narrowly? I think it's more of a buying stuff problem. You know, the consumers held up better than anybody expected all year. They're just spending on different things. So the inflationary environment has taken a lot of money out of their wallet for things like food, like gas, right, above and beyond the normal times. People are also continuing to spend on travel and entertaining, going out to eat. 
And what that leaves is less money in their wallet for things like apparel and accessories. So what we've seen is the consumers really looking for value. We've seen a lot of market share shifts toward retailers like TJ Maxx, Ross stores who are really focused on value, um, great brands, good prices. And we've seen some of the higher priced retailers that don't have the same perception of value for the consumer start to really struggle. Well, the all the buzz in here before the show started, the crew and I were talking about how much they love Shein and they're all buying clothes and juicers and everything else from there. So they're, they're, they've arrived. Who, who, who does that uh, mm-hmm. displace? You know, look, there's always been a really inexpensive disruptor in apparel retail. We had Forever 21 for years coming in with rock bottom prices. We've had Primark. Um, Shein has taken that to another level, both on the pricing side and also on the number of units that you can buy. I mean, there's just a constant, constant feed of newness on that website. I think that that will take share from a lot of the less differentiated private label retailers who compete on price. Um, And one of the reasons why we don't think off-price will be as uh, impacted by it is because they have high-quality branded apparel that is of value to their consumer, right? You can buy a $10 pair of trousers and wear them every week for two years, right? That's a different kind of value than two fashion tops for $10 that you could wear a couple times and then get rid of. So I think it's, you know, it's certainly disruptive. It's certainly affecting a lot of the teen and tween retailers, a lot of the lower priced retailers, but I don't think it affects everybody the same way. That's a great point. It's almost like off price is the new department store. Shein is the new off price, Some, something like that. But I just want to highlight the fact that your favorite name, your top pick is Bath and Body Works. And that surprises me because they were such a mm-hmm. pandemic beneficiary. I would have thought we were still in the hangover period. Why do you think there still a, could be a relative uh, bright spot? You know, I think we're, we're very close to being finished with that hangover. They were a big pandemic beneficiary. Everybody was running out to buy soaps and sanitizers, and those categories really blew out for them during COVID. They've come back to normal for the most part. And I think what's exciting about Bath & Body Works is they're launching newness for the first time in years. Um, they have a new management team. Uh, they have some new strategies to really start launching into adjacent categories. And I think that would be very important for the story over the next several years. Um, it's also, it's a really good branded product at a value for the consumer, which I think will be important this holiday season. All right, we are going to see a Santa lighting on, on Saturday. So I'm gonna look and see if that store is crowded and do some channel checks. Lorraine, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll check back in soon. Thank you. Lorraine Hutchinson with B of A. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, Kelly, I'm going to find out more about a Santa lighting in a little bit. I guess that means Santa is lit. All right, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society posted that there are intense clashes right now taking place near a hospital in Gaza City. The post on X said that snipers have opened fire on the facility and that one person has died, two dozen injured. NBC News has not been able to verify these claims independently and has reached out to the Israeli Defense Forces for comment. Glaciers in Greenland are melting five times faster than they were 20 years ago. Scientists at the University of Copenhagen found that there is a clear correlation between the temperature we experience on the planet and the rate at which glaciers melt. Ancient ice sheets hold enough water to raise sea levels 20 feet if they were to melt entirely. Taylor Swift's record-breaking streak continues. The global superstar has made history as the first person nominated in the Song of the Year category at the uh, Grammys seven times now. 
She also claimed her sixth album of the year nomination for Midnight's, tying the record with Barbara Streisand for the most nominations by a female artist in the category. Interesting, Kelly, Barbara Streisand back in the news with a uh, memoir That's these right. days. See you in a half hour. We'll wait for Taylor's in 30 years or so. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, it might be rough going for traditional retail, but the travel industry has high hopes for the fourth quarter. Up next, we'll get a read on the strength of the season from the CEO of TripAdvisor right off their big earnings beat with the stock up 21% in two weeks. We're back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping, Summer Shipalooza, so you can start crossing items off your must-ship list, like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Welcome back. Spending on travel and experiences remains resilient, and it's not just Taylor Swift. TripAdvisor beating on the top and bottom lines earlier this week, shares up 9% since that report. Revenue from its tours unit via tour soaring more than 40%. Sales from the overseas restaurant reservation app The Fork jumped 20%. And TripAdvisor expects these trends to continue with its latest survey showing two-thirds of travelers now pay, place more value on experiences. Joining me in an exchange exclusive is Matt Goldberg, president and CEO of TripAdvisor. Advisor, welcome to you. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. And in a nice stretch lately, what is driving these gains we just talked about? Well, the experiences trend is for real. And you see consumers experience, uh, prioritizing discretionary spend like travel above and beyond all others. Now, we're seeing it elsewhere, too. It's in concerts. It's in sports. But travel, three quarters of travelers tell us that they will prioritize travel no matter what happens externally. And 95% of them say that it's something that they will uh, continue to do uh, over and over and, and with experiences at the heart of it. So when we talk about signs of fraying in the consumer, we've seen delinquency ri rates rise a little bit, especially maybe for subprime. This morning, the consumer sentiment data wasn't that strong. You know, there's other pressure points you worry about into the holiday season. Do you think your business is going to be resilient to all of that, or is it just going to take a long time for those to be felt? Well, we're seeing travel intent hold. It's durable. And the reason for this is that uh, two-thirds of travelers want to go travel this winter, and it's a travel season that people get very excited about. Uh, and they're saying that they're going to book experiences early, and they're saying that they're going to continue to go, whether it's domestic or international, probably 70% domestic, but up to 50% say they're considering international as well. And what's most interesting, perhaps, is that um, you know, as they look at uh, the eco economic indicators, uh, they basically say that they will put travel at the top. So they will save in other areas so that travel can be prioritized. <laughs> they will pull back on toilet paper if they have to. So or they, clothes. Or, <laughs> right, you know, exactly. Yeah. What are, you know, we've all been so hyper-focused on the Taylor Swift thing. I am curious, and you've talked about it broadly, international, but what are some of the specific experiences that you really see people flocking to? Well, it's interesting because experiences are coming in probably as incremental demand over other things that people do. And it's, it's that sort of experiential travel. It could be something as simple as pasta making in hmm. Tuscany. It could be glowworm uh, spotting in New Zealand. Hmm. Or it could just be, you know, going to the Caribbean and doing an ATV on the beach, a snorkeling tour. And this year we've heard a lot about uh, 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 guided uh, night 
kayaking tours. So there's a lot of interest in uh, adventure wow. uh, and the experience that you can bring home as a memory that will last a lifetime. Glowworms in New Zealand and guided night kayaking tours. Okay, so this goes well beyond Taylor Swift. How do you guys make money on all of these different? Is it is it the similar model, no matter if it's an experienced traveler, what have you, or are there different types of ways that you kind of monetize along the way? Well, you talked about the beat across multiple categories. And so we see, you know, with the hundreds of millions of people that come to TripAdvisor, uh, we see about a third coming for hotels, about a third coming for experiences and growing, and about a third coming for dining. And of course, dining is still a very important experience. Um, and we make money in a multitude of ways. Uh, some of that is uh, by uh, the traffic uh, that we send to others. Some of that is by uh, sharing uh, our audience with brands who are increasingly using us, whether endemic or non-endemic. Uh, and then, of course, we can take you right to booking an experience. And so, uh, you know... And then with, maybe take a cut of that or something absolutely. like that? Absolutely. So it's a combination of... Uh, transactional uh, uh, revenue as well as the the, the media revenue. You've also say. come in to kind of take over the business from a founder. Where do you see taking this in the next, say, two years, two to three years? So our vision for TripAdvisor is that we can be the leading, uh, uh, trust, most trusted uh, source of travel and experiences. And putting experiences at the center of this, if anybody believes that the experience of this economy is for real, we are the company that is probably best situated with the demand profile and the supply that we bring to the Table to take advantage of that trend. There still there are all of these deep uh, pocketed competitors. Stuff like booking and, and experience. I know they're not exactly the same. That you know, but they there is some overlap there. Um, how do you differentiate? Do you advertise? Do you have to pay for kind of those Google results? Do you worry that ChatGPT is going to disrupt all of this at all? Well, we've been very active with ChatGPT. Have you? you? Know, yes. In TripAdvisor, one of the things that we're thinking about is shifting to an engagement model mm -hmm. where we can bring people in. And so we recently launched a uh, trip planning. And an itinerary builder, which is leveraging uh, ChatGPT. It's getting like a great travel uptake. agent. Yeah. Absolutely. And it can be in your pocket with an app. Mm -hmm. And so we're driving towards engagement, and that engagement is driving the diverse monetization model that I just mentioned. We also partner with Expedia and Booking. In fact, uh, we have over 4,000 partners for experiences, which includes both of them, and tech giants like Uber and Amazon. So that experiences model is right at the heart, and we feel like we are do right you, in a bullseye zone. Do you take a vacation? What, what do you, you, you probably have a better sense than anybody out there. Do you just do a staycation and say, I'm over, I need to just stay home and unplug. I do both. Yeah. Uh, uh, and in fact, I've got both coming up. And uh, for, for the holiday, I think I'm going to go back down to Australia where I spent a lot of my career. So I'm excited for that. That is a long flight. Matt, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time today. Matt Goldberg, CEO of TripAdvisor. Coming up, President Biden set to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco next week. With tech restrictions, one of the hot button issues for both countries. We'll look at some of the companies with the most at stake as these discussions happen. The exchange will be right back with the Dow up almost 300 points. Welcome back. Big focus on U.S.-China tensions today ahead of the APEC summit, where President Biden and President Xi Jinping are set to meet in San Francisco. We also have some new headlines showing cracks in the Chinese tech crackdown. For more, let's check in with Deirdre Bosa for today's Tech Check. Deirdre, what are, what's happening exactly? So, Kelly, the last time that President Biden and President Xi met was a year ago during the Group of 20 summit in Bali. Since then, tensions have only ratcheted up. So it'll be interesting to see next week if we get any announcements or 
even signals on tech sharing, tech export bans, anything that might signal cooperation. Meanwhile, though, and you mentioned it, there are two areas where Chinese companies continue to make advancements here. That's AI and e-commerce. Zero One.ai is one of China's buzziest emerging AI startups. It was founded by Kai-Fu Lee, one of the leading experts on AI in China, who has had stints leading Microsoft and Google in the country. In less than eight months, his startup has reached a valuation of a billion dollars, so that's unicorn status, and created a product that performs better than American ones on certain metrics. In an interview yesterday, Lee said that he went on an NVIDIA GPU buying blitz earlier this year, buying enough of the chips to last for the next 18 months or so. So he essentially front-ran U.S. sanctions and stockpiled enough American technology to build up a fierce Chinese competitor. On the e-commerce front, we've talked about this before, two of the fastest-growing e-commerce platforms in America are Chinese, Timu and Xi'an, which I know you were just talking about, Kelly. American companies, though, they continue to take hits in the Chinese market. There's Unity, missed revenue expectations in its most recent quarter, thanks to new Chinese government restrictions on gaming. There's been rising challenges for Apple as well. Meta, though, might be going the other way after 14 years after getting shut out of the country. It's getting back in with Chinese tech giant Tencent to sell VR headsets. So, Kelly, the stakes are high next week. For tech in particular, we'll be watching extremely closely. And San Francisco right now is gearing up for a major, major event. The barricades are already starting, and people are trying to figure out how to get around the city. Well, I just thought that meta news was so fascinating. After 15 years, maybe their headset is uh, the, the, their reentry into China. Very telling ahead of this summit. Deirdre, thank you. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa will be a busy week there next week. Coming up, crude down about 6% so far this autumn, but that didn't stop Warren Buffett from adding to his position in Oxy. Where prices are headed and whether Oxy and other big oil names are a buy, that's next. Welcome back. Oil prices are up a bit today, but on pace for their third down week in a row now, as OPEC is set to meet in person later this month, with bulls hoping more output cuts might be on the table. But Brian Sullivan is here to look at whether those hopes will be dashed once again, like all the other hopes the bulls have had lately, Brian. Amazing, isn't it, that oil is at 77 bucks and you've got a two million barrel a day cut from OPEC. You got Saudi cuts. You got the Russia cuts. It's Iran. It's Iran's a big reason. They're putting three-plus million barrels a day on the market. Quickly, I want to hit the rig count. Came out, you know, 1 o'clock today. Down again. Hmm. 494 U.S. drilling rigs in the United States. Down from 622 a year ago and 887 five years ago. Look at that. You'd wow. think fewer drilling rigs, higher prices. less oil, higher prices. But no. Guess what? Oil, yeah, higher than it was five years ago. But that said, record U.S. production. 13 million barrels a day. You talked about OPEC. All right, OPEC's next move depends on really three things. U.S. demand, right? EIA says we're going to drive less next year. 1% decline in gasoline consumption. Really? China demand. Where do they go? And non-OPEC production. And this is interesting because we never talk about the country of Brazil. 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 Big factor. How big a factor? Getting big, big and getting bigger. Okay, look at this chart. Now, I thought I debated showing you this because there's just a lot going on here. It looks like a Tetris screen. Okay, the right side is 2021, 2023, 2025, the estimates. The right side, the white, big white thing, that is basically, uh, that is demand, and supply was very low. That's coming off of COVID. 2023, supply, demand, left and the right. Got it. Basically balanced, but here's the thing. OPEC sees non-OPEC, which is U.S., Brazil, um, and a few other nations like Norway, supply exceeding demand. That is probably why OPEC has stuck 
hmm. to their cuts. Why do you think the price has been stubbornly low uh, lately? I mean, what are people well, low, in the market low, saying? Low-ish. I mean, and, and by the way, consumers don't feel. If you look at the consumer sentiment number this morning. Their one term, their three term, their inflation readings were up again, in part on expectations of higher gasoline prices. So. You know, they're kind of braced for the worst, but it's really the bulls who are feeling the pain right now. They are. And what's amazing is that you look at research report after research report, with the exception of a couple of people out there, maybe Citigroup and a couple others. Most people are fairly bullish, meaning they see higher prices and they keep kind of tweaking them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's not moving. Mm -hmm. This is frustrated. I think the Saudi energy minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman, said, I think it was last week, that basically this is a paper market, meaning the what we show our viewers that's a contract. That's a com- you press a button, it's a computer screen. The physical market, the actual delivery of oil to make gasoline and other things may be different. Um, he also talked about deals. And you can see that quote, I don't think Exxon would merge Pioneer for charitable purposes, or for that matter, Chevron would do that with Hess without having a reason. And what he's trying to point to, this is the Saudi energy minister, is that even U.S. companies, Exxon and Chevron, see probably long-term Strong Less demand. Strong, strong demand. They're doing this because they see, see strong demand, not because they feel like they have to consolidate for a period of, you know, existential weakness or something. The like EIA that. says we're going to have 1% less gasoline consumption next year, which would actually be the lowest per capita gas consumption per capita in 20 years. Growth of EVs, mm-hmm. work from home, inflation, people driving less. But even that's still, Kelly, that's still a massive amount of demand. I think it really all comes out of China. If China really does start to do well then we could see higher prices. Absolutely. It's going to come down to China. And I think, you know, you've had Kyle Bass on your Mm -hmm. show and others. I think China is in trouble. Well, that's what... And I think OPEC sees that. Oh, fascinating. That's exactly where we should leave it. Brian, thank you. Appreciate it, Brian Sullivan. We'll see you tonight, by the way. I hope so. If you don't, alert the authorities. (laughs) You might be in the sewer again. (laughs) Real real story, but a side story. Uh, That's the news (laughs) on energy. But how do you play the stocks? We're going to look at four names in today's three buys and a bail. And Jeff Kilberg joins us for that. He's KKM Financial's founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, welcome. Let's start okay, with how are you? a good, good, sir. We'll start with ExxonMobil. Uh, lower slightly since Gen 1 now, but they're down 10% since September in this slide Brian and I were just talking about. Profits missed in late October despite cost cutting. It's got that spending spree, $60 billion on Pioneer, its biggest purchase since Mobile back in 1999. Mobile. I keep saying Mobile. Uh, anyway, nice yeah. Jeff, are you a buyer here? You know, I am a buyer, Kelly, and I think Sully brings up a great point, and that's kind of the broader swath here. We talk about all these energy names we're going to discuss. We have seen the move lower, and China is the wild card. I know Sully wants to talk about Brazil, maybe go to Brazil, but what we're seeing right now is Exxon has the ability to recover some of the loss. If you go back to 2020, had a gang, uh, had a very tough year. They had two consecutive gangbuster years. So now, as we're seeing the dollar strengthen a little bit, or as we're seeing some uncertainty, all the geopolitical tension, I think there's an opportunity in Exxon. It's the essential name. It's the biggest market cap, nearly $500 billion. So this is a stock I want to own. This is a stock I have owned. You'd be a buyer of Exxon. You'd also be a buyer of Occidental, which is lower today after they got a downgrade, which actually talked about uh, how they might be slightly behind peers. Wolf Research saying their return on capital is decelerating faster than the competition. They did beat on earnings earlier this week. They're buying back $300 million of shares from Warren Buffett and Berkshire, which still has that 22% stake. You got to stick with the Oracle, right? You do. You can't fade Warren Buffett. That's not a smart adventure. But nonetheless, this is a higher beta name. So if you look in 2020, when you saw energy stocks having a hard time with COVID, this was further extended to the downside. However, 
when you saw it bounce back, like in 2022, it didn't quite have a NVIDIA year, like of 2023, but it was up over 100%. So this is a higher beta stock, but if you believe and have some conviction that we've seen crude oil prices go down too far, we've seen demand be not properly measured out of China. I'm a little more optimistic, I think, than some of the folks, specifically Kyle Bass, with demand coming out of China. You want to own a name like Oxy because you will see a higher beta rebound in a name like this. And if you think if you look at the 50-day moving average, it's just at $64. If it recovers there, Kelly, then it has some room to run. All right. Watching 64, it's just under 61 at the moment. And we'll move on to Halliburton, the services name, which is also a buy for you. It's also lower on the year. It beat on earnings, slight revenue miss in Q3. Stiefel thinks North America outlook still looks positive, even in a broader commodities downturn. Why do you like this name? Well, look, at a forward P.E. of 12, I think it's a, it's a value opportunity. But I think you think about Halliburton, again, it's going to be high tide lifts all boats here in the energy space. But I think energy is just such a uh, – if it's a trader's delight, but at the same time, investors have to have exposure. But you have to be tactical with your exposure because we have seen a lot of moments in time if it's either geopolitical tension, strength of the dollar, U.S. policy. Even the Federal Reserve has their hand and footprint on energy. But this is a name, again, that has a very strong balance sheet. So I want to own Halliburton moving forward as well. All right, 12 times forward earnings. That brings us to your bail. This is almost a cheat because it's not a fossil fuel name. It's solar edge. You could have done plug power up here. I mean, these the new. let, let me stick with solar edge. Down 75% this year, as people can see on the chart. 27% single day drop in October. Worst day ever. Earnings miss. Wells Fargo says there's no recovery in sight, even though management says marketing efforts and moder- moderating interest rates can be a tailwind. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Maybe some people are tempted to, to buy for the long run here, but not you. Not yet. I agree. But look at 2023. It's just been horrific, horrendous for solar stocks. So this chart, it's an ugly looking chart. And as you know, a lot of uh, you know broken down ships are at the bottom of the sea with charts like this. And if you see it down 75%, I need some type of catalyst to see it move around. But to defend Solar Edge, to your point, Kelly, if you look at the balance sheet, about $3.3 billion in assets, that's kind of equal to where it's trading. So it's trading, uh, obviously, oversold conditions, but I can't be a buyer here until I really see solar turn around. Now, remember, going back to 2020, this was a fave. This was the NVIDIA stock of 2020. It was up 235%. So I think you have to understand this is not something uh, from a long-term investment, but it is an opportunity to trade. I just don't want to trade it yet because it still seems like it wants to go lower. Don't blame you. Jeff, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. Jeff Kilburn. That was his bail, but you can also read Jeff's piece on how he's using options to take advantage of potential upside to Exxon after oil's decline. That's exclusively on CNBC Pro. And that does it for The Exchange today. For more analysis on markets and the economy, the SOM rule, whatever else is on our mind these days, uh, sign up at cnbc.com slash newsletters or scan that QR code on your screen. And next on Power Lunch, lawmakers now have less than a week to fund the government. Can they stick the landing? And what would a shutdown mean if we're headed for one? Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of the screen. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too. Because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. 
Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Rapatha.com or call 1-844-RAPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Rapatha.